Hello, this is Coffee Dave once again, bringing you the final portion of Only Small Actors. Chapter 33, Boo. Seymour, I may have done something awful. And Bitsy was ashen and disconsolate. Seymour sat behind her as she explained the two conversations and managed just about to get through the part about the rifle and the shotgun. But when she came to the ammunition business, she simply broke down and began to wail like a child. This was not the tough, self-assured Bitsy that Seymour married. The Bitsy who toughed out bad reviews, her father's prolonged lung cancer death, no smoking in the house, and an older cousin being one of the last sectarian murders in Ulster. The police had been informed, and Grandpa spent his youth on the run from folks who made every effort to kill him and was not about to be caught by the gentler folk who were on the lookout for him now. At least the cops knew what he presumably was heading for, and he was heading for Manhattan, Kansas, to protect his granddaughter. And as luck would have it, Byron Bannister provided a reasonable look-alike to take the unaccountably missing Betty's place. They were told Betty was spotted by several people accompanying Albert Coffin to dinner, confirmed by the hotel, and also confirmed that room service was bringing them food for the last two days. As her whereabouts were known, and she was not in danger from the bail-jumping Pravarti Hamed. Surveillance was kept on the young lady taking her place and following Betty's schedule. Bitsy tried to persuade Seymour to go to Manhattan, Kansas with her, and he, for once in their married life, put his foot down hard. He was not going to let her go anywhere near that nut Hamed or his sleazy brother, and certainly not in the neighborhood of a deranged and armed grandpa. Let the cops or Bearcat surprise Privarti and say, Boo! 34. Bad Business This was becoming too much of an effort. Byron was cheating on Candy with Herman, cheating on Herman with Candy, having three ways with both, and, despite his better judgment, started a boisterous romp with an Asian Laker girl to reconfirm that the old army story wasn't true. After proving to himself that the rumored Asian vaginal tilt was as mythic as the Gorgon or an honest politician, he found himself so taken with her lively ways that he bound the maiden to him with hoops of Hollywood steel, a roll in Chop Shop, and ordered Tom and Carl to make sure that the cast were as ethnically diverse as a Warner Brothers World War II flick. He made his new honey one of the hatchet Harry henchwomen. She would wear the glowing, supposedly nuclear prostheses and extra limbs of the maniac's hordes. He wondered if they might get it on with her wearing full makeup. It was an interesting thought. Like all directors and producers of this generation, as the prior generations, Byron had no compunction about relationships with the people peopling his pictures. It might be considered bad business in the business world, 
but in the show business world, it was business as usual. He was interrupted while considering the activation of his bedroom camera and getting some candid photos of himself with his mandarin plum when the private line rang and he heard Bearcat's unmistakable growl at the other end. We got Hamed, Stella and me, but I think we fucked up. We see this foreign dude with the bling like you described, the earring and all them diamond rings and that big thing around his neck. And he was driving a big-ass Humvee with Bollywood One plates. Plus, he was hanging around whenever our friend Neat and Naughty was walking around the campus. So, come dark, we slips up on him while he's parked scoping out the girl. And I say, Brevarty Hamad. Every day the bear cat gets you, like I, like I says in that miniseries. Well, he jumps like I electrified his balls, and he starts to lie about he's not Privarti Hamed. So I give the high sign to Stella, because it looks like he's thinking of driving off, and she tasers the little prick. Well, he does the taser dance for a while, and during one of his better moves, he whacks his noggin on the steering wheel and is out for the count. So we check his ID, and it ain't Privarti. And the fucking license plate ain't Bollywood one, it's Hollywood one. We got the brother. Where are you now? Uh, Stella and me, we standed by the car. This all went down about five minutes ago. Do you have your flask of Jack with you? Sure. I'll move the bastard to the passenger side. Pour the liquor on him. Drive over to your hotel, get him up to your room, and enter the bed. Tell the desk clerk he's a pal who had too much to drink and you couldn't let him drive. Are you at the Bristol? Yeah. Good. Get him naked. If he starts waking up, do you have something to get him to sleep? Uh, no marks, remember. Got some chloro. Okay. Just keep him quiet, but don't mark him up. No room service or maids, okay? I'll send over a nurse. She'll knock three times and, and say she's come for spring cleaning. Got it? Yeah. Good. And Byron smiled, thinking of the fat Cayman bank account of Sri Sabarti Hamed. 35. Barn. It was more than 90 minutes, and while Albert pushed as fast as he dared on the two-lane blacktop, Betty redialed and redialed, and finally got through as they were almost in the driveway. She was relieved to see her mother smiling and standing with the chastened-looking grandpa. The rifle and the shotgun, plus the ammunition, had been handed back and apparently were locked in a metal chest, and grandpa swore that it was all a misunderstanding. He kissed his granddaughter and shook hands with Albert and apologized for putting them both through so much stress. Albert was invited for a late supper and, as it was so late, to stay the night. They were thrilled to have the voice of Barney Buzzard in the house, and while Grandpa attended to his pot roast, Betty's ma was distracted by Albert's tales of Hollywood and some amusing stories about people she had seen on the television. After dinner, they talked for a while, and then all retired for a night's rest. As Albert was going to the guest room, he passed Grandpa Boop's open door. The old gentleman had his back turned and was about to put around his neck something that startled Albert Coffin. It was an absurdly large crystal-encrusted piece of jewelry, 
about as appropriate around the neck of a bib overall wearing farmer as a tutu on a sow. Albert hurried to his room and sat in deep and confused thought. As he stared into the velvety black, he saw a figure leaving the house and heading toward the barn. Suddenly, a soft rap on the door. He opened it to Betty in her nightdress. Want some company? She smiled. Betty, is there any reason why your grandpa would be going to the barn tonight? No. Did you see him leave? He never goes out after supper unless there's an emergency. Maybe I better go and help. He has been confused lately, and the doctor said that it could get worse at night. Maybe he's getting disoriented. I'll go with you. And each dressed as quietly as possible, and then, as silently as they could, they left the house and traversed the distance to the barn. The door was ajar, and parked inside was the biggest Humvee Betty had ever seen. The license plate read, Bollywood 1. 36. Bravo. Tied to a beam was Pravarti Hamad, a gag in his mouth, and his Eddie Bracken shirt torn open to reveal more chest hair than was really necessary. Grandpa was quietly sharpening a wicked-looking blade that was not Cretan, but a fine example of American steel. It is only a merciful god which prevented Pravarti from understanding his captor's droned native language, as he initially had been describing what he had done to some of the enemies of his family when he had the opportunity, and then went on to describe what he intended to do to the animal who was going to cleanse his beloved granddaughter. Betty had enough of the native tongue to tighten her grip on Albert's arm to the point he inadvertently said, Ouch! and Grandpa turned around to see them standing in the doorway. Don't you come any closer. This beast deserves to die for what he was going to do. He turned to Betty. You didn't see, but I was there. Two nights he came along with his big car and fancy jewelry, spying on you with his binoculars and taking pictures. I know he was just waiting for a chance to steal you away and put you under the earth. He tells me he's a big film producer and he was considering you for a film role, but I don't believe it. He's another of those sectarian ethnics. I'm sure of it. No, Grandpa. If you harm him, they'll take you away from us and put you in jail. He, he didn't hurt me. He was just looking like all the boys do. Tell him, Albert. Say something, for God's sake. Albert, courtesy of an excellent memory and the fair presented on in glorious black and white on the old movie channel, drew himself up to his full five foot nine and transformed into a country lawyer from long ago. This is America, Mr. Boop, not the old country. Trust in our system, not an eye for an eye. In this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and our jury system. That's no ideal for me. That is a living and working reality. Now, I am confident that you, if you review without passion the evidence, you will come to the right decision and restore this man to his family. 
In the name of God, do your duty. In the name of God, believe Tom Robbins, uh, uh, this, this man. Grandpa turned, raised his knife, sliced through the man's bonds, threw down the blade, and back, strode back to the house. Betty and Albert rushed to Hamed and removed his gag. To kill a mockingbird, the court scene, Attica's summation, bravo! I'm planning a musical version. How's your singing? Can you dance? Think you can learn some Hindi? 37. Brookhaven. They sat together on the love seat, arms about each other, his shirt damp from her tears of relief. Privati Ahmed was returning to face the music, shaken and stirred too, it seems, by the life-saving acting of Albert Coffin. Seymour fielded the call from Herman Krakauer and told Herman that he would consider a public apology and a hefty contribution to the charity of his choice and drop the lawsuit. The poor bastard seemed to have been put through enough punishment already. I'm so relieved. I can't believe I started so much trouble with one little phone call, said Bitsy. Well, it's hardly your fault. The call was one link in a chain stretching back more than 50 years when Grandpa Boop was on the run for his life. Then he was found by lost American soldiers. He came to Kansas, had a child. She had a child. That child wanted to pledge a sorority. A stunt was reported. She was then tapped to do a bit in a picture. She had five minutes of fame. Her picture was seen by a lech, and so on, and so on, and so on. You came toward the end of the sequence, a, a chain of events that had been forming for more than half a century. Do you think you were the sole cause? Any one link different could have sent the chain in another direction, and we would never have known Betty Book and her grandpa. Just as if there hadn't been that freak summer windstorm, we would never have met. And where would Melisande be if we hadn't? Just one possibility of the trillions of possibilities that never come into being. Bitsy sat quietly by his side, and had he looked into her eyes, he might have seen her withdrawing from the reality of that room to another place far away. Seymour, would you be alive and make me a big pot of coffee? Pour it into the thermos and bring it to me. I'll be in my workshop. He was glad to see her recovered, and knew that she had something brewing too, so he brewed her something. She lived on coffee when she worked, pots of the stuff. She told him Balzac did the same, writing furiously to keep ahead of his creditors. Then he chuckled, remembering he thought it when she started each project. Seymour walked into the atelier, and as always his eyes drifted up to the nondescript cubby on the wall where the Brookhaven rested. Her reward wasn't an award. It was the joy of creation. 38. Bartlemy. His mandarin plum moved in. The crack hours were no more. Far too complicated. Was he influenced by his new girlfriend's Asian sensibilities? Hardly. Susie Cho grew up in the valley 
and part of her charm was that phraseology and accent coming out of the mouth of his huggable almond cookie. The Krakauer situation was a Mexican standoff. Everyone apparently had recording devices in their bedroom. The threesome's participants had hours of recording unspeakable practices and unnatural acts, enough to land them all in a hoosgau of several red states. They met for a final dinner at Katz, and afterwards brought their tape collections to an incinerator, uh, but of course they hadn't destroyed it all. Will you, dear listener? Byron held in his hands other photos, ones starring Suvarti Hamed and a voluptuous young lady wearing a nurse's cap, latex gloves, bustier, mask, stockings, but no panties. And she was a natural blonde. See, naughty nurse, give the embezzling bastard a high colonic. Now see the scene change to one in which the embezzling bastard is looking at those candid photos and being told he will be lion producer of Chop Shop, the beginning, but will be overseen by Byron's own accountants. See Suvarti Nash's teeth. Then see Suvarti ask for the phone number of the girl in the photos. Now, dear listener, observe Byron Bannister walk to his desk and pick up a DVD. On the cover it says, With Restored Cutty Award-Winning Footage. See Byron's smile. <clears throat> 39. Bollywood Briefing. This is your Bollywood Minute. Shooting began today for the four-hour, all-singing, all-dancing Mockingbird, a relatively unknown in the role of Atticus Finch, Albert Coffin was known as the voice of Baxter Bunny and Barney Buzzard until the role of his life as blind date number three in Byron Bannister's Serial Lover. The Cuddy Award-winning turn, in turn, seems to have earned Albert the attention of Privarti Hamed, who tapped him for this role. Albert has been working digitally on his Hindi, but says he has extensive singing and dancing experience, including parts in The Music Man and Oklahoma. 40. Blistering Betty Boop went into the blistering workshed. No reason to air condition it and waste money on a few moments of cool. Her job was outside, making sure the cattle were getting their corn and plenty of water on a Kansas summer day. The damp pipe at the lower end was blocked and needed replacing. She grabbed the the tool kit and swung around to head for the door and saw the bitsy she won for female foreign film performer. Some second-rate comic presented the award and said she deserved two for some reason. She kept it out of the way. Better here in the house than to remind Grandpa of those producer creeps. Christ, it was hot. She wished she could take her shirt off and work stripped to the waist like the guys. She knew better. She wouldn't be able to get a decent day's work out of any of them. A woman's burden. She heaved the strap up on her capable shoulder and headed out the door. And that is the conclusion of Only Small Actors. This is Coffee Dave, K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E.
If you wish to comment on this or any of the other stories, you may reach me at coffeedave at yahoo.com. Hoping you have an enjoyable week. Until next time, goodbye.